Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 15 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. Today is Wednesday, May 3rd, and I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, it's a little bit of a, a somber week here in Austin, and I think we wanted to say a word at the top of the show um, about why we might be a little less jovial than usual. Um, has nothing to do with sports, has everything to do with an all-too-real tragedy that happened on this campus on Monday. Uh, a freshman, Harrison Brown, was killed in a stabbing attack. Three other students were wounded. You know, we don't know, Bobby, anything more than what's been in the news, but we do want to note that, you know, we live in a very real world with very real threats from lots of different directions. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible tragedy, and our, our thoughts and prayers are with the, the families and friends of the victims. Um, anyway, but so that's why we, we don't have anything especially fun to say at the top. Um, Bobby, there's no easy segue into the substance for this week, but just to give our, our listeners a sense of what we're going to talk about, um, we'll try to find some humor <laughs> down the road a little bit. Um, Jim Comey testified, obviously, before Congress today. Not sure how funny that is, except that apparently he talked about being mildly nauseous, which is now a big uh, trending term on Google. <laughs> no doubt about it. He has a... He has a knack for a good turn of phrase. Indeed. Um, we're going to actually really spend a lot of our time beginning our deep dive into Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, thanks to, Bobby, some interesting and at least to me surprising news from last week. Um, we'll talk a bit about transparency under Section 702. Um, then we're going to talk a bit about some interesting developments uh, from the Supreme Court. Um, and then we're going to pivot out from there um, to maybe a brief discussion of some of the movement on Capitol Hill toward a new authorization for the use of military force to deal with ISIS. I suspect we'll end up saving that probably for next week or a future episode. Yep. Um, and just not to be missed at the end, um, with reports in the news that that the Hollywood actor Val Kilmer is is battling cancer, we thought this would be at least a, a fun moment to reflect on the, 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 the rather diverse Bobby Val Kilmer filmography. I got to say, I, I, we could do the whole podcast on that. I'd be psyched. But I guess we need to get our surveillance nerd on. And I got to think of what my Top Gun quotes are going to be while we go. Dwell on that. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, you know, we should seed this podcast with subtle references to his filmography. Um, That'd be a great homage. Let's see if we can do it. All right, yeah. so, so Val Kilmer and Section 702 and About Collection. So, Bobby, we've been over this track before, but let's remind our listeners, when we say Section 702, right, we're talking about the provisions of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that Congress added in 2008. Um, and just give folks, again, just a, a quick, quick, quick refresher on exactly how 702 collection is, at least in theory, supposed to work. Okay. So the, I think the best uh, place to start is to imagine sort of the ex-ante world in which you have uh, uh, foreign intelligence collection carried out without judicial involvement when it's taking place overseas, targeting non-U.S. persons overseas. That that whole realm, which uh, in the business is often referred to as 12333 collection. Named after the executive order 12333 that was promulgated by President Reagan in 1981. Right. And so the paradigm of this would be some gigantic NSA-operated uh, dish pointed towards the, you know, back in the day, towards the Soviet Union, trying to suck in all the, you know, electromagnetic spectrum that it can to capture communications involving all things Soviet, it's Right. And so in that model, Steve, not a lot of Fourth Amendment equities, to put it mildly. The assumption is it's taking place over there. It's about people over there. It's not Fourth Amendment sensitive uh, because of the, the tumult of the 1970s surrounding various surveillance practices and exposés and investigations. Uh, from 1978 onward, we've had the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, where it's still foreign intelligence collection, but 
in, in various complex ways, the statute envisioned that there would be Fourth Amendment equities. There'd be a, a U.S. person target, the targets inside the U.S., the collections inside the U.S. I am admittedly glossing over all the fun <laughs> nuances that make it complex. Uh, so those who are in the know are listening, you know, I, I understand that we're skipping the nuance. <laughs> we're setting out the basic idea. So you sort of have this home field approach where you have to go through the FISA court process, making a probable cause showing that your target's an agent of a foreign power. In, and, entirely because of the Fourth Amendment. Yeah, it, well, it's, 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 it's largely. A whole, because, indeed, right. you know, that's the underlying idea. Yes. Um, and then, and then there's the uh, the away game model in which the courts aren't involved, and it's not thought to have those equities. But of course, that, doesn't, that doesn't account for neutral site games. Bobby. Exactly, and you have and you have games that span right that, that where the <laughs> analogy breaks down. And so, what would be a scenario like that? Well, there, there are a bunch of them. Suffice to say that in the uh, in the legislation that created what eventually becomes today's Section 702. The following are the assumptions, uh, that the target is supposed to be a non-U.S. person who is not, it was reasonably thought not to be inside the U.S., right? So you've got what sounds like the away game model there. But what you're trying to do is compel the cooperation of a U.S. company that's a service provider that will be helpful to you in the collection of the content and metadata for that target, that foreign target's uh, communications. And this basically takes advantage of the fact that we have a tremendous home field advantage in that you have all these American companies that A, you know, provide the email platform or the phone platform, or B, maintain the actual backbone of the telecommunication networks. Right, the infrastructure, the fiber optic cables, you name it. Exactly. So, and, and so to kind of get further into the weeds now, when you're, when you're going directly to the, the communication platform provider, Google for Gmail, for example, then you're talking about what is what is being referred to now as PRISM. If you hear the word PRISM, that's what you're talking about. Um, you're going to try to compel them, or you will compel them, to cooperate with you in collecting their customers' uh, metadata and content on their communications. And just to be clear, metadata we're talking about, for example, IP addresses, right? Where are you accessing their their their, their account from? Well, we might be talking about maybe the headers on emails. Most we're certainly not talking about subject lines, right. but metadata in this context, I'm referring to basically the to and from the session data about the communication, mm -hmm. who was communicating to who, what time, et cetera. If it was, you know, the simplest example that, well, the younger listeners won't be as familiar with, but the older ones will remember scouring the long distance portion of your phone bill to see, did, did I really call someone in London for two hours the other day? What or was or 113 minutes. Right? Yeah, exactly. In minutes. And, and so you have you know, you know your number from the bill, and then you see the number that was dialed, and then you see how long it took place and what time it took place. That's the metadata, right? right? And you can imagine email analogies sure. to this. Okay, so uh, with with Prism, you're compelling with FISA court involvement. You're compelling uh, a company that's within the jurisdiction of American courts to cooperate with you in tracking down content and communication for their clients. Then there's upstream. Uh, again, for their clients who are outside the U.S. and who... Yes, sorry. Let's right. be really clear. These are non-U.S. Right. persons outside the U.S., but good luck for us, or fortunately for us, they're using Gmail or, or some Facebook. other service right. that can be reached in the U.S. American Ingenuity. Right. And then you have the separate scenario, and here we're talking about the upstream, not prism, but upstream scenario, where the home field advantage is that, well, a lot of the big pipes that are carrying all this traffic, whether it's for telecoms or for the internet, uh, these may be companies that also can be compelled by an American court. And so here, you're compelling them to do something similar, but it's more complex, Steve, because they're not providing the, the email handle. They're not providing the phone number. They're, they're actually providing the pipes through which those communications are passing. Right. And then the U.S. and then upstream, right? The, the word means upstream of when it enters the United States, right? Or when it enters the relevant company's server room, 
right? We are collecting the bundle, right? The 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 transactions. Right. So then, so yeah, so it's it's really easy to be targeted, right? With Prism, right? Because you're going to Gmail or you're going to Yahoo and you're asking them to pull some information out of right. that. I want to see. File. I want to see all of the emails sent from Russian, you know, citizen Vladimir Putin. Well, or more specifically, you know. Putin at gmail.com. Right. Uh, or, you know, I, I'm something, something, something tells me that's not his email address. Yeah, exactly. You know, Johnny, Johnny Ringo at uh, <laughs> gmail.com. Hint, hint. Um, so uh, it, with, with Upstream, it's more complicated because let's say you're going to film the blank company that's maintaining part of the internet backbone. Um, yeah, they have physical access and technological access to all that traffic, but you got to scan it. Right. It's, it's everything's on there. And so in both cases, um, the idea with 702 collection is – once a year, NSA has got to go to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and describe the processes and technologies and algorithms and procedures that combine to provide them reasonable assurance that when they think someone is a non-U.S. person and they think they're outside the United States and they think their communications have foreign intelligence value, that these things are reasonably likely to be true, right? It's sort of a process approval. It's a once-a-year certification. Um, when you get this approval, it's good for a year, and then you have to get it renewed, which we'll come back to in a minute. But once you have it, as I tell my students, it's like you've got the ring of power, and you can go <laughs> now with the ring of power, and you can go to the Googles and the Facebooks and all the rest and the AT&Ts and say, I, I can compel you to assist me in looking at this non-U.S. person, this particular selector, right. and, and they then cooperate. Now, Bobby, uh, three points of controversy here, right? So point number one is unlike the classic FISA model, which is going to a FISA judge and saying, hey, judge, I have probable cause to believe that this specific person is an agent of a foreign power, right? Now what you're doing is you're actually going to the FISA court on an annual basis for what's really not a warrant, right? For no, what really definitely is, not a warrant. Right, right. Which, which at least um, in my view and, and some others raises interesting and novel questions about the Article Three role, right, of the FISA court, about whether the FISA court is really doing something that is within the judicial power when it approves one of those certifications. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it, policy-wise, you can see why they'd arrange it this way to create that role, but it does raise interesting law type questions. Because, right, because the original FISA model, the whole idea of having this ex parte in-camera proceeding was justified by the Office of Legal Counsel at the time FISA was enacted entirely on the notion that the warrant is ancillary to a subsequent civil or criminal proceeding, which is how we've also allowed magistrates to issue search warrants since time immemorial. Which, you know, I will say, like, from the beginning, that was an Quite a fiction, because in almost all instances, there's never going to be a. It's a fiction. It, it, it's there's no question. It's a fiction, and I think it was understood at the time that it was a fiction, yeah. but it was a necessary fiction. So, so controversy number one, right? Is there some weird separation of powers problem from investing in the FISA court with this kind of role? Yeah. Let's bracket that for a minute, because sure. I think we're not yeah. going to we're not going to really dwell on that today. Yeah. Controversy number two, right, um, is the sort of. Um, the the role of the recipient of the directive, right? So Congress in Section 702 authorizes the recipient of directives, the telecom companies, the communication service providers, to actually object, right? That the theory is maybe perhaps with an eye toward the Article Three problems we just alluded to, um, that it would actually be better if you had meaningful adversary judicial proceedings to test whether these directives and these certifications were actually pr proper and valid, and that the providers would perhaps stand in the shoes of their clients. 
right? There are reasons to think that that hasn't worked so well. Yeah, so I'm not sure how central, I, I agree that's possible, but I don't think it's really central to, to the justifications for the system, in part because- Oh, no, not justifications, yeah. but protections. No, right. right, right. But I think that the, the better model might be one in which you know, a lot of people have argued we need more uh, relevant technology experts assisting directly the court, right? That adversarial, adversariality is great, but it's not the only way to get the expertise in there to help the court make a sensible judgment about whether the technological description they're given actually makes no, sense. No, I, I totally agree with that. My point is actually slightly different, which is that um, the if the theory is that the recipients are going to somehow vindicate the rights of their customers, um, the practice, so far as we know, has really not uh, been. You so. mentioned the rights of the customers, so that draws draws attention to who are the. This so, is your third. So point, this, so this gets to contrast number three, right? Which is especially once you pivot from prism to upstream. To me, at least, you dramatically increase the specter of what the government calls incidental collection, right? Hey, wait, before we get to that, let's just to go back to, b before we have the jump of who else you might accidentally be getting information from. Well, I'm going to fight you on accidentally. Yeah, so in terms of who you're definitely trying to get the information on, this is by let's stipulation. Let's say who you're targeting. Who you're targeting, which is indeed the right way to phrase it. Again, the target is supposed to be a non-U.S. person outside the United States. So the, what we were referring to earlier in the, in the original FISA context as the sort of the Fourth Amendment equities and that are in the spirit of why judges are involved at all, as opposed to the paradigm of 12333 where they ain't involved. Uh, the idea is, well, in some cases you have these U.S. person equities and it changes things. Here, what makes this a middle case and results in this middle ground procedure is the very fact that the target is supposed to not be a person who's got those sorts of interests. Right. Okay. So that's the middle case, right? Yep. Okay. But then there's the third case, right, which is when you're collecting large bu bundles of information over the internet. Um, and Bobby, so far as we know, when you lack the technological capacity to segregate the information based on who you're supposed to be targeting at the moment of collection. Right, so it's the upstream problem, down, uh, not down, well, downstream, <laughs> but PRISM. Right. In the PRISM context, not an issue, you know exactly who you're- Or at least not, not as much of an issue, right? There's still- right, right. Okay. I, I can almost hear a few people say, hey, that's not how I feel about it. <laughs> great, great, but it, relatively speaking. So no, yeah. in PRISM, it is, it is a highly select process because you can go right to right. the provider of that account. And, and so in PRISM, it looks much more like conventional incidental collection, right, where, where the sort of, the number of, of people you're not targeting who are going to be caught up within the communications of the person who you are targeting. Well, it's just like wiretapping on phones. Precisely. You're, you've got your target, but the whole point is these are two-way or multiple-way communications. You, you're going to get a bunch of people, and some of them, some will turn out to be U.S. persons. Which, is, which, right. is conven which I would describe as conventional incidental collection. Yeah, okay, I like that. And so then, what, so what happens upstream? Why is it different? Because, again, remember, we're talking about the service provider that uh, owns and operates the pipes. The pipes have all the telecom or internet traffic on them. And what you're doing is you're filtering, you're, you're, you're checking the packets, and you're trying to identify, and this is where it gets interesting, N not just, up until Friday last week at least, not just to or from communications, involving communications to the target or from the target, but also a separate category called about collection. And, and of course, it's all pretty self-explanatory. In the to from model, that's the paradigm here. You're looking for the emails or phone calls to or from your foreign target. With the about model, you're also looking for communications that are not to or from the target, but the people who are communicating, they mention the target's handle, their phone number or their email, whatever the communications identifier is. So Steve, if you emailed me and, it, and you included in there 
you know, Doc Holliday at uh, uh, Yahoo.com, and that was perhaps one of the, the foreign targets' uh, uh, handles, about collection, in theory, would try to grasp that. So you'd end up with it. And uh, that is a, that's a scenario that doesn't arise in the prism setting. You're just doing two from there. But with upstream, it's two from, and until recently, also about. Now, with about collection, by definition, you're getting communications that aren't to or from your uh, non-US person, foreign intelligence target. And it, is, it was widely thought that this was a particularly likely area to bring in information or communications that might involve accidental or incidental collection of US person uh, information. And so this has been controversial for a while. So Bobby, that's a really helpful uh, discussion of to, from, and about. But you know, it seems to me that part of the thing we have to add to this conversation is we talked about what we, what we call traditional incidental collection, right, or classic incidental collection, which is in the PRISM model where you just aren't expecting the, the other person to be on the call. Um, there are folks like me who have raised serious concerns about incidental collection in the context of upstream because, as we said, at the point of collection and upstream, you can't segregate out the information. And so you're actually incidentally, Bobby, collecting an enormous amount of likely, right, U.S. person communication information, including content. Um, why am I overreacting? Oh, let me count the ways. No, <laughs> in all seriousness, I, it's not a total overreaction. I mean, I think it's, it's widely acknowledged that about collection in particular is technologically tricky, having to do with the nature of um, the multiple communications that may be captured even when you accurately identify a particular packet as having something that's to, from, or about your actual target. In other words, for, for technical reasons we don't need to get into, you're, you're very likely to capture some additional communications. Um, and therefore, you're going to have a wide, especially because of about collection, but not only because of that, you'll have a wider set, a wider pool from which there might turn out to be, amidst all the foreign communications, some U.S. person communications as well. Well, but wait, I mean, uh, some, I mean, you know, I, I mean, we have we have at least some data suggesting that it's actually quite a lot of U.S. persons communications, right? And, and, and indeed, and that's not, I mean, you used the word accidental before, right? I sort of, I, I grimace at that because the government knows Right, it's not like it's an, they're not like, oh my gosh, we're so surprised. We got all of this accidental information that we weren't expecting to get. They were expecting so to get So I don't it. think we actually disagree too much, but just to be clear, so leader, listeners should not think that what's going on here is you're just monitoring all traffic. The filter is searching for something that is to or from. And the, used to be about. <laughs> and, and, or to or from the target. Right. Or a communication that could be you communicating to me, but if you mention a foreign target's email address or phone right. number, you know, we want to find that. And if there were a way to do this reliably, this would be a very important form of collection. So here's the catch. There's a couple of catches. One is um, searching for what's about, scanning the content to find that about reference. We have been told in various public documents that actually has turned out to be very tricky. And though I don't think it's ever said quite explicitly publicly, it sure seems like that must be having something to do with uh, the growing ubiquity of encryption. Um, indeed, it's been... It, it seemed to be the case, Steve, that maybe about collection just doesn't work very well, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so we find out last Friday. Because, because wait, doesn't work very well because you're getting too much because you're no, not they, getting they, enough. They can't they can't scan efficiently for it. They can't find right. it now. Whether that's so too much noise, not enough signal. Perhaps or perhaps they can't get anything, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. you know it's just a bunch of hashes. All right, so so this gets us to the news. Right. So the news suddenly comes out in a, in a really rare public statement from NSA announcing that they've decided to abandon about collection from the upstream process. Remember, there is no prism about collection. With prism, it's all to from. So if you abandon it upstream, you're abandoning it 
period in the 702 model. And uh, this is really surprising both because NSA doesn't normally, you know, announce these things. Uh, At all. Secondly, you know, why forego it if they were still trying to work on it after all these years of, you know, kind of trying to maintain it? And so what's going on? First and foremost, uh, it quickly became clear, and this was talked about uh, both in the NSA documents and then in some really good reporting that Charlie Savage then did. Um, They had to do it if they wanted another renewal from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Uh The the FISC process, uh, at least in this instance, Boy, did it have teeth. Uh, they apparently were not willing to continue renewing the certification, which they had been uh, in 2016. There had recently been a, a data disclosure indicating no certification under 702 had issued. And people thought, oh, my God, are, are they not collecting it all under 702? I thought 702 was a big deal. Well, what they had was an extension of the 2015 orders while they tried to convince the court that they should be allowed to go ahead with uh, what turns out to be this problem about how you handle about collection. Um, Steve, do you want to share a little bit about how they had self-reported some mistaken processes that analysts were using? Sure. I mean, so so one of the things that that I think is well-known in sort of legal nerd circles and not well-known outside um, is that both the rules of the FISA court, I think probably it's rule 13B, um, and also almost all of the sort of minimization rules of the company, um, these certifications. And minimization rules are the rules that when you do incidentally collect U.S. person information and, and upon examining it, it's not of a foreign intelligence value, you're supposed to get rid of it. Right. So almost all of these things require that the government voluntarily disclose what are called compliance incidents. And compliance incidents come in various shapes and sizes. But the short version is a compliance incident is when the government is using these authorities in a manner beyond or indeed counter to how they've been approved by the FISA court. The theory being that the disclosure of these compliance incidents allows the FISA court better to determine what kind of questions it should be asking in the future, whether it should be withdrawing or failing to renew these certifications, and so on. Right. And indeed, whether it's, you know, it's granting approval for these processes subject to certain conditions that make the court comfortable that Fourth Amendment equities are being protected. And And so here, there was a compliance. Right. And so one of the transparency reforms that was pushed for in the run-up to what became the USA Freedom Act that was not adopted um, was a push to disclose not the substance, Bobby, but at least the number of compliance incidents reported to the FISC on an annual basis on the theory that the number itself would not tell us anything about the substance of the programs being reviewed or the nature of the compliance error, but it would give us a sense of just how how much oversight there was, how much back and forth there was. This didn't really go very far on the Hill. And yet in this instance, we still did find out about yep. it in a big way on Friday. So it, th- to sum up, there's a uh, problem of, of a certain kind involving how analysts are accessing the results of 702 collection. And I think, Steve, it was intertwined with this question of the, the uh, U.S. person data that gets caught up in that. So the FISA courts, in light of this reported error or, or, or mistake, right. the FISA courts unwilling to issue a new certification until this gets cleaned up. This then leads to some further internal assessment of, gosh, about collection isn't working very well. It's causing these problems. We could make this problem go away by just dropping about collection. And so they do. All right. So, Bobby, how big a deal is this on a scale of one to the Spurs losing by 30 points in game one? Oh. <laughs> oh. You, you've, you've, you've been waiting this whole time to drop that on me. You know, it, it didn't feel right to lead with it at the top, given that we were talking about the oh tragedy on campus. But, I mean, they were down by 39 at one point. So, look, it was, it was a humiliation, <laughs> no question about it. 
Um, I turned on sports radio while well, I was in the car earlier and heard Colin Cowherd going on about how the Spurs dynasty is over. And <laughs> well, it, that's an overreaction. It, uh, it's completely. <laughs> and so my, my message to you, Steve, is the same as I would have given him if I'd called into his R- show. R-E-L-A-X. Uh, it, it is that it is it is a uh, fool who counts the Spurs out. I, I would pay good money to hear you call into Colin Cowherd's radio show. But all right. So, but we digress. So back so, to so our back show. To, but back to our show. So so I guess my I mean, but how big a deal is this, Bobby? Because right, right, on okay. the one hand, like NSA seem to give this up. I mean, we don't know anything. We're on the outside. Yeah. They seem to give this up pretty easily. This well, I mean, it depends on which lens you look through, right? So they and what they've this been is. taking they've been taking a lot of heat about about collection for a long time, and it persists. that was not a typo about about collection. Indeed, that was the proper use of. There's a can, there's a Canada joke in here somewhere. <laughs> About <laughs> well, anyways, uh, they've been trying to sustain this one possibility. So theory A, upon you know years worth of effort and reflection, they've decided you know this just isn't working. Perhaps because the growing ubiquity of encryption is just making it uh, not not all that feasible, not worth the trouble. Uh, corollary to that, maybe they can get a lot of this without uh, having to compel the company's cooperation. Maybe through espionage overseas, they can get a lot of this anyways under 12333, so why have all the heartache? Um, one thing that the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, the PCLOB, had uh, emphasized in its last, <laughs> truly perhaps last, annual update from February 2016, where they reviewed uh, compliance with or progress on some of their recommendations, they had included a line in that report saying that one thing they'd been hearing from NSA, Steve, was that they couldn't just walk away from about collection because some of the technology was right. somehow intertwined with the critical to, to and from. from. And yeah. so and so and so maybe since that time, NSA has been do, do, conducting feasibility studies of and disentangling. If, yeah. One really hopes because so my immediate reaction to all this was oh, um, I see why they maybe needed to drop about collection to be able to get that certification. From the FISA court. But did we just gut upstream to from collection? That'd be terrible. Right. So so on the flip side, right, there's also the civil libertarian concern, which is that this is all much ado about nothing, um, right? So there are various folks that have Marcy Wheeler being a good example who have been a little skeptical that this is that huge a development, at least in part, Bobby, because, you know, they're still to from. Um, at least in part because there's still 12333, right? And all of the potential for um, non-accidental incidental collection under 12333. Right. So um, to from hopefully does continue, although that's entirely, if you can pardon the, the double use again, uh, entangled in the entanglement controversy. If about really was entangled with to from, and if that hasn't been fixed, then to from maybe just got gutted. We hope not. I mean, you, you have to assume that surely they wouldn't have rolled over on this that easily, that you, you'd you be hearing rumors, you'd be hearing leads. Unless, I mean, Bobby, so at the risk of being a little skeptical, unless they found some clever interpretation of another authority that renders to, that that, right. that, that, that allows them to achieve the same bottom line right. and the same take without going through the same 702 right. to so from So you mentioned 12333 as the obvious candidate. Maybe under 12333, now, why might we be a little concerned about that? It's possible that they have managed through ordinary overseas espionage without the company's cooperation, ma- managed to get into the same systems to more or less use the same tools. Let's say like you're in. literally farther upstream. Yeah, exactly so. Um, upstream it, squared. It's possible. The, the, the danger with that is, of course, as we all know, these these things are perishable. Yep. If, we ha- if we have a means and method to do that, 
That's great that we have it now. Could go away tomorrow. The whole point of having the, the upstream 702 uh, process was you can compel the company to assist. No, I understand. But safe and secure. But you say it's great that we have it now. I say, but you know, 12333, unlike 702, doesn't even have the, the initial modest judicial review, right? And so if, in fact, that's what's happening, and we, again, we have no idea that that's what's happening. But if, in fact, part of what's going on here is that either because of technological developments or espionage developments or both, right, the government is able to do more through 12333 that it previously had to do through 702. That raises concerns for me, Bobby, because 12333 is subject to far less accountability in the FISA court and far less oversight on the Hill where, you know, Senator Feinstein, when she was chair of the Intelligence Committee, basically said that we have very, there's very little role we play in overseeing surveillance under 12333. Now, we should make sure listeners understand, um, 12333, the executive order, requires, in all the departmental policies and regulations, they all require minimization of incidentally collected U.S. person communications. Of course they do, but like, but we never would have gotten here, right, if if there weren't compliance incidents. I mean, right, the whole, the well, whole mean, about make, controversy. But, okay, but there's compliance incidents and there's compliance incidents. <laughs> you, you, you wouldn't want the, re, the listener to think that what goes on is that people engage in, you know, all sorts of misdeeds willy-nilly. I mean, you, it's a big, high-volume operation. There are going to be compliance incidents. I agree, but let's, but let's take the MCT problem under upstream, right? So, so there's a famous moment in the history of the upstream program where the government was misrepresenting to the FISA court what it was collecting when it was collecting so-called multi-communications transactions, right? This culminates with the October... On the misrepresentation point, the lawyers were not knowingly No, 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 no wait, I was about to they, clarify. There's a gap there. I, I, but Bobby, my yeah. point, right, so, so, so we both know exactly what happened, which is that the lawyer said one thing to the technicians who heard something else. Right. The, technicians the, the two report, tribes didn't communicate correctly. Right. They, they each used the same words to mean different things. Right. Totally right. understandable right. as a matter of non, you know, just goodwill, good faith, etc. My point is that's exactly why I'm worried. Not because there are these nefarious NSA officers sitting in a room somewhere figuring out how to manipulate these authorities to the, you know, to no, elicit Clearly ends. not. No, but because those kinds of communications right. breakdowns are inevitable. And so, and so then we must ask, okay, so if with 12333, if the FISA court's not in there policing things, does that mean no one's policing things? It's just up to the character of the people? No. It, you have this, this massive apparatus of the, uh, the, internal control, uh, the internal control system in NSA, the chief compliance officer, inspectors general, the legal counsel's office. And, of course, that's not to say that, therefore, it's infallible and we should all be happy. But it's just to underscore that there are many things other than the court that are involved here. I agree. The court itself may not be, as you said earlier, the the greatest check itself. I completely agree. My point is just that what we've learned from history is that the last people to adopt any new theory of the Fourth Amendment, right, the last theory, the last people to adopt any aggressive reading of the warrant clause or the reasonableness requirement are the internal executive branch officers. True, but you're you're definitely going to need an aggressive theory and a novel theory of the Fourth Amendment for most of what 12333 collection is focused on to even implicate. But wait, Scott, let's go, let's go back to language. What Bobby said was focused on. I agree. I'm not worried about what 12333 is focused on. I'm worried about what it's producing, right? Which is to say, I think there's a very strong argument that the Fourth Amendment does protect. And indeed, Jen Daskal and I have a forthcoming book chapter arguing uh-huh, that the Fourth Amendment should presumptively protect incidental collection in the context of foreign intelligence surveillance, where the incidental collection is of individuals with Fourth Amendment interests, and where the government knows in advance that the incidental collection, that that the authorized surveillance is going to produce this incidental collection. So let's say, for example, we've got um, the ability through espionage to to tap into a fiber optic cable somewhere and capture some 
percentage of yep. internet traffic. Yep. Uh, by definition, then, you're going to have a certain percentage of the world's traffic that can be broken down by country. Totally. And you know you're going to have roughly that amount of American traffic, Canadian traffic, and the rest. So on, on y'all's theory, what then follows? So uh, we ours is not an argument against collection. No, right. right? right. It's ours, all about the use on the back end of the right, access. That there has to be some kind of Fourth Amendment warrant clause satisfaction. And that can be to through... To do what? To query, right? Once you've identified the data as being not targeted data, as being the incidentally collected data of a U.S. person, at that point it goes into a lockbox, right? And the lockbox cannot be opened until you can satisfy the warrant clause. Now, Bobby, there are a couple ways to satisfy the warrant clause. Right. I'm sorry, until you can satisfy the whole Fourth Amendment. Right. Now, the warrant clause may not apply if it's a U.S. person overseas. Right. The Second and the Seventh Circuits have wait, both wait. held. I thought it was only U.S. person information going in the lockbox. No, no, but U.S. persons overseas right, right. are not yeah. protected by the warrant clause according to the Second and Seventh Circuit. So in that context, the question would simply be whether the collection was reasonable. reasonable. Yeah. Right. But if it's a U.S. person at home, Bobby, if one of my emails oh, yeah, no, yeah. ends up in a packet that gets intercepted somewhere out in the, you know, the wild, wild You're ocean. saying it shouldn't be treated as if, well, it's just plain sight. It's in plain sight, so I can look at it now, even though I couldn't have intentionally gone out to go And so it. conventional incidental collection doctrine, which I assume is gospel at Fort Meade, right, yeah. would hold that as long as it's incidental, it's fair game. Well, and, and indeed, there's it, it's not just an NSA issue, right? This is law enforcement in general. There's all sorts of circumstances with incidental collection where once it's on the front end collected lawfully, as far as I know, there is no domestic example of the of imposing that rule for accessing what's otherwise already in the government. So documents. there's one important counterexample. So Judge Sand in 2000, in one of his rulings in the in the first Bin Laden trial, actually talked about how we shouldn't apply ordinary incidental collection doctrine when the government knows in advance um, that it's going to be collecting on, in his case, specific right third parties. Um, but you're yeah, right. It was targeted in that case, though. Well, but, so so you're, you guys are proposing something that would be an innovation that might be a good idea. Um, at, or at the very least, we're suggesting that folks ought to stop treating all incidental collection as being as implicating the same question, right? That there is to us a categorical difference between classical or conventional incidental collection and the kind of incidental collection that goes on when you're doing upstream or what we think we're doing through much of our 12333 collection. So this is actually a great segue for our second surveillance topic, which is to uh, convey to our listeners the, the key details from this uh, this week's ODNI transparency report. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot about this particular topic, and we can we can kind of resume the discussion there. So what is this? Well, for, for several years now, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, has produced an annual transparency report uh, concerning all these tools we've just been talking about. This is to some extent now mandated by the USA Freedom Act. Uh, to some extent, some of it was already in existence. So they've, they've been doing some version of this uh, beginning for the calendar year 2013. So you have 13, 14, 15, and as of this week, we now have the data on calendar year 2016. And so real quick, I thought I'd run through, Steve, uh, some of the interesting tidbits, and you and I can talk about where the sensitive points might be. Sure, we'll do the short, short version a la Princess Bride. (laughs) There you go. Let me sum up. Do you? Yes. Do you? Yes. You're married. Good. Kiss. <laughs> so, um, first of all, there's a section on what what we call traditional FISA, yep. the the ordinary Title uh, One. Yeah. This is this is basically the wiretapping of the electronic surveillance of specific targets, physical searches, uh, where you can show there's probable cause to believe the person's of an agent of foreign power. Um, that we get data on the total number of orders here and the number of targets involved. And I would say, Steve, it's pretty steady. It's around 1,500 orders uh, this past year, which is similar to the year before, and just shy of 1,700 uh, total targets. 
Uh, 80% of whom were non-U.S. persons, which actually I found interesting that the majority of the targets for traditional Pfizer are actually non-U.S. persons in the United States. There's there's a 20% pool that is U.S. persons, and we tend to focus on that, but that's actually not the center of gravity. Well, I mean, as we've discussed in the context of, of I don't know what the heck we're calling the Trump-Russia scandal, right? The sort of the classic, classic foreign intelligence surveillance paradigm yeah. is foreign agents in the United States, whether officially or unofficially, yeah. who are not U.S. persons. That's right. Okay. So we'll move on from traditional FISA and get to 702, which we just spent a ton of time talking about. Hey there. How about some data? Data. Some data. Uh, Mr. Data. Now, uh, we get some information here. But the what, what, what was the great meme on the internet last week about um, uh, follow data, not lore? Oh, nice. I did not see that. That's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a Star Trek nice. Next Generation joke for everybody. wonder how many of our listeners... <laughs> horrified by that. I, I dare say that actually probably a decent percentage of our audience understands yeah. who Data the, and Laura are. The Laura episodes were good ones. Indeed. So absolutely agree with that. Um, so on the, the number of individual targets, individuals um, targeted under 702, um, these are non-U.S. persons outside the United States. The people whom we're trying to capture the communications mm-hmm. of and get metadata on. Uh, in 2013, it was 89,000 individuals within the 702 program. Uh, by by this past year, it's up to 106. So that's a you know that's a pretty big jump across three years. And I would say, Steve, that's exactly what you'd expect to see, given that in that period we've had the rise of the Islamic State yep. and and the surge of activity related to it. Yeah, no, no. I think I think this is deeply consistent with what you. If you and I had sat down and tried to predict what kinds of patterns we would see in this data, I think we might have come up with this. Yeah. One. In fact, it'd be it'd be shocking if it were otherwise. Indeed. Um, okay, what else did we see? How many times did the NSA analyst query the resulting content looking for a U.S. person's name? So just the thing that's concerning you, right? So again, dear listeners, assume 702 collection is operating as it should, and there's this uh, accumulating database of content and metadata, and NSA analysts certainly are meant to have access to it, but they, they query it. You know They can't sit there reading the whole thing, Steve. It's too much. So you query it using search terms, including sometimes the names of U.S. persons, which is where I think your case for, for a Fourth Amendment interest is, is most strong, right? right? At that moment. The government is trying to get information on Steve Vladek. Um, so how there aren't many, that many of me. All we're getting here is just sort of the numbers. How many times did this happen in the calendar year? We're told 5,288 times, which is about 600 more than the year before. Now, I don't know about that shift, but and I don't know what the, what to make of the absolute number, but it's clearly something that does happen quite with some frequency. Right, about about fifteen times a day. Right now, it happens much more often with the metadata. Interestingly, mm-hmm. so the data on U.S. person uh, queries involving metadata instead of content, which by the way, under existing third party doctrine, would not require, would not implicate even Fourth Amendment interests for a U.S. That's person. That's right. A separate a separate kind of pro government argument available there. Although we're going to get to the Supreme Court in a minute. Indeed, I I, I agree with you that that's not a stable doctrine. <laughs> Um, 30,355 instances, which is uh, a big jump from 15, where it was 23,000 plus. Mm. And back in 13, it was just 9,500. So there's something going on in terms of either the like growing multiplicity of, yeah, either either the tools are getting more robust, or I think this has got to be a big part of it. There are just so damn many uh, communication platforms. There's just so much of it. And they're starting to focus hmm. more and more on it. It would be interesting to know how this how this stacks up to the sort of total number of communications collected as like a percentage. Yeah. yeah. Are they doing more metadata? Right. Relatively speaking, or, of or, is we there can't ju- tell. or is there just more metadata? Yeah. Exactly. Probably right. a little bit of both. Now, now we come to a big issue. That was all NSA analysts. Right. The really sensitive point, and here I'll again make your argument. Ooh, um, I like what this it, happens. Uh, <laughs> it's when it's when the FBI, right. for law enforcement purposes only 
accesses this. They have, they have the limited ability to query this data too. And we're given numbers here. And it's a fascinating number. So this would be, if it's a big number, the strongest case for being concerned because it's collected for foreign intelligence purposes. But if you can then query U.S. person information for law enforcement purposes unrelated to foreign intelligence, well, that does seem like a difference in kind, right? It seems like you've basically snuck around or some would say gone through the back door. Indeed. Um, the data, one instance. One which, I mean, aren't you dying to know, Steve? Like, what was that one? So I'm dying to know what that one is. But, Bobby, I'm also dying to know how they define the category. Right. And, and it's clear from the data that they did not count in that one any situation where there was perhaps also a foreign intelligence interest. So this, that's right. the data point that you need to assess this. Because presumably, Bobby, they would count, right, any counterterrorism investigation um, as touching on foreign intelligence. Well, an international terrorist. terrorism scenario, yeah, yeah. Well, so anything with, like Islamic State or al-Qaeda, yes. Or even suspected, right? Right, right. And, so, and, and by the same token, uh, you know, Russian manipulation of the election, counterintelligence, right. uh, international aspects of cybersecurity. Right. So I would, I, I mean, I, I find this data very helpful, Bobby, but only to a point, because I think without the definitions, it's hard to know what to make of them. Yes. And so what, if you're if you're into good government, as we are, <laughs> as we are. Uh, and if you're into transparency, as we are, we think that there are... Remember good government? Remember that old thing? Uh, read about that. Yeah, so a they, history book. On, on this one, well, you know, you books. want more, more discerned categories and you want a complete set of categories so you get the total number and then you can divide it up. How many total FBI queries? Right. How many were of totally. this kind, etc. So so good start, but we need more. We need right, more right. denominators. Exactly. Now there's another big issue here that it goes on to touch you mentioned the Trump Russia stuff. I did. My my favorite uh faux uh faux scandal, the unmasking scandal. Uh, we get some data here. Uh how much unmasking goes on? Well the 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 unmasking story is a story about when U.S. person names appear in intelligence reports that are generated as a result of p- analysts who process the data that 702 and other programs sure. produce. Now, um, there are, or in 2016, there were 3,914 intelligence reports that were based at least in part on 702 data that had some kind of reference to a U.S. person. That's that's the starter point. So thirty nine hundred. Okay. Um, and how many times did Susan Rice break the law? Oh wait, sorry. <laughs> you shock me, sir. Uh, the default policy is to mask the names with just a general reference. You know, bracket U.S. person one. Uh, that's the default policy, but the analysts themselves can make the determination when generating the report that obviously the identity is relevant to the assessment of the intelligence value of right. the report. Right. And in uh, 30% of these cases, there was at least one unmasked name to begin with. The analysts did it. So um, what happens next? Well, then it goes out to the customers who then sometimes famously uh, ask for unmasking of the names that are currently just brackets. Heavens and, to Betsy with a dreadful idea. Right, and you can absolutely understand why that's indeed something that makes sense, especially in some of the politically sensitive contexts we've been talking about. Um, so usually the U.S. person names are masked, but we're told that in 1,934 instances, one or more of the customers who received the report pushed back and said, I want one, of the, one or more of the names in the report unmasked um, and received that unmasking. What we don't know, Steve, is whether that's some but not all of the requests. In other words, we don't know from the data, were they ever told no? We don't, that would be interesting. Again, right, we need denominators. We need denominators. But, but so, I will say, but but note what, I mean, guys, just, just so that Bobby's point isn't lost on all of you, this is what, calendar year 2016? Yeah. Right? 1,934 instances in which a customer, not the original analyst, right. 
successfully unmasked the identity right. of the U.S. This person. happens all the time. It happens six times a day. And indeed, nice math. Indeed, this was down from the year before. Five and a half. When the year before, <laughs> the year before the total was 2,232 instances. Um, again, that sounds we, like an intelligence scandal, Bobby. It sounds like Trump was wiretapped. <laughs> it sounds like Susan Rice broke the law. Let's send them all to jail. So all you can say for sure is this happens a lot, and it happens a lot year in and year out. I feel like the, we've said all those things. Well, we do, we've said it all before, and we shall say it again. What we don't know is, is it the case that whenever the customer asks for it, it always gets unmasked? Now, that actually would be interesting. Yep. And Eli Lake and others have pointed out, like, there is, setting aside the, the crazy politics of this, there may be an interesting story here about U.S. person name protection. 100%. And I think it's a great story to tell. And I think there's a, this goes back to what to me is the, the, the necessary limit of this data, yeah. which is without denominators, yeah, it's, it is. It's, we have to be very, it's, it's more useful than nothing. But how useful it is, I think, really depends upon, you know, sort of, our instincts, Bobby, about what the denominators are. Indeed. All right. Now, so, now, now, here's one other good story that comes from this. Let's jump ahead to the business records data. Oh, goody. Okay. Now, this is the heading under which we previously would have found, if they'd had this and they were doing it then, uh, telephone bulk metadata collection, right? So we all know the story of how for years there was bulk collection of everybody's call records, everyone in the States, who's calling who. Um, and this you know, goes away to in a certain way, thanks to the USA Freedom Act, Steve, right? That mm -hmm. it's not that NSA can no longer get call data records. It's that they can't make the companies or half the companies turn them over in mass. En masse every day. Right. Billions of records. All the data of who called who, the whole shebang, right? right? That's not how it works. But you can still indirectly get this information because the providers have the data from a certain uh, for a certain length of time. And under the USA Freedom Act, it is explicitly contemplated. This is no secret. This is no revelation. This was the whole point. NSA can, when properly uh, approved by the FISC, say, hey, give me the call data records on this phone number up to two hops. Right. So who did this person receive calls from and make calls to? And who did they receive And then calls who from? did they have the same thing, right? right? So we get some data here. Now, the data is broken into two buckets. Two degrees of Val Kilmer. Two Indeed, two degrees of Nick Rivers. Um, are you lonesome tonight? <laughs> I need to get the Val Kilmer references in there. You are dangerous, Steve. So, uh, first of all, before getting into the call data rec detail records, I sorry, I think I keep saying call data records. The phrase is call detail records for the phone metadata. There's actually some interesting stuff here that the report calls traditional business record stats, but their example illustrates that this includes um, the two from what looks like the analogy to call detail records for email and other non-telephone communications. Now, here, if, if I'm reading this right, Steve, it looked like kind of a one-hop system. When you have under the Business Records Authority under FISA, you go to the FISC and you get approval to get information of this kind about a, uh, a particular person because it's relevant to the right kind of investigation. You get the information about who's in contact at the first hop level only. You don't get the second hop, it appears. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm wrong about that, and if, if listeners uh, know more, by all means correct us. In any event, the data reflects that model. So if, if you have a target's Gmail address, and there are 450 different people or entities emailing to or from that target's account, then you can get Google to produce, produce the selectors, those 450 other addresses. Um, and so what was the data? How much of this went on? 88 approved targets. 81,000 resulting selectors identified, mm -hmm. which I think actually that if one target, if, you know, think about your own uh, email traffic, 
do you think that's that, a low number? Yeah, so a thousand. Yeah, it's a pretty low number. It assumes about a thousand nine hundred to a thousand uh, communicants directly with you right. in, over the course of a year. I, I actually surprised that number is not much bigger. <laughs> Clearly, these people were not law professors. Well, and it also it, it makes sense when you think of it this way: if they've done a good job of their targeting, right. these are probably accounts that are not high volume accounts, not high volume accounts, and indeed not careful right. who they're. Right, indeed. Yeah. So, so what I mean by not law professors is not getting lots of emails from oh, I don't know, students with exam questions. We just got another one. Yeah, um, oh, did we? <laughs> right, or requests for interviews. Well, you get more of those than I do. Right, oh, or please. you know, <laughs> fan mail. It's more hate mail. Right, I mean, right, <laughs> right. So, but these guys, right. these these should be relatively low volume deals. But what's interesting is eighty one thousand. If you framed it the right way, sounds like a big number. Which is the segue to the last point: call detail records. Yep. So, what do we find is going on under the USA Freedom Act? Uh, 42 targets approved in 2016. The number of call detail records returned, 151 million. Wow, that's a big number in the abstract. But when you understand it, actually, I'm surprised it's that small. So am I. Right? So if you just think about uh, 42 targets, uh, you can imagine all the complexities here. Average number of calls per day. How many phone numbers do you have? Although, Bobby, apparently people don't call anymore. It's a generational thing. Yeah, well, yeah, the phone calls have dropped out. Voicemail, like, I don't check voicemail, do you? No wonder. That could explain a lot. <laughs> no, okay, so in my case, I have, I have a home phone number, a cell phone you number. You get my messages? I have a law school phone number. I have a Strauss Center phone number. And you check none of them? I check the voicemails on none of them. That's four phone numbers. On an average day, how many calls in and out on all combined? I mean, if you were going to be really conservative, you might say five across four phones. That's that's 20 right there, yeah. 365 days a year. That's 7,300 first hop call detail records just for that conservative estimate. Um, the data will capture things twice. If you have a different provider, right. um, it'll show up in both pools. So you might round that up to 10,000. Then you do the second hop, do it all over again. 10,000 times 10,000, 100 million. I'm actually really surprised. And you multiply that by 40, right. you should be at you know you should, should be at 40 billion a year, right? Right. I'm actually really surprised the number is only 151. No, no. Again, I mean, I think I think these numbers are they're 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 provocative, not in the sense of like raising alarm. They're provocative in the sense of like you know suggesting that there's actually some really interesting stuff going on behind the scenes here. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, I more think denominators. We, we have said enough about 702 and its brethren. We've for lost now. everybody. Um, Let's try to uh, rescue our remaining. So if you've, if you've made it this far, I think we will hold our AUMF conversation for next week. Yes, it sounds yes, like yes. this is going to be a matter of interest on the hill for some time. Bobby, as a 702 with reauthorization yep. and the offing. We'll be back on that. We're one. going to say a quick word about a couple of interesting developments in the Supreme Court before we get to our, our quick ode to Val Kilmer. Bobby, you could be my wingman anytime. <laughs> BS, Steve. You can be mine. <laughs> Like the family-friendly uh, modification I there? couldn't get you to say it. I thought I would get you to say <laughs> it. All right. Um, anyway, so uh, the Supreme Court this week, Bobby, did a couple of interesting things, and it didn't do one interesting thing. So the two interesting things it did. First, on Monday, it granted certiorari in a case that I can proudly say almost nobody other than me was paying attention to called Patrick versus Zinke. Um, <laughs> this is actually a case about, in, uh, in well, Ostensibly, it's about an Indian casino. What it's really about, Bobby, is Congress's power to tell the federal courts what to do in specific cases. Um, that's not obviously a national security issue in general, but there are actually, Bobby, only two instances in the Supreme Court's history where the court has invalidated an act of Congress 
on the ground that it unconstitutionally took away the court's jurisdiction. One was, of course, Boumediene, the 2008 Guantanamo habeas case. The other was this Delphic 1872 decision, Klein versus United States, which is what Patrick is about. So there's an interesting overlap here in sort of structural separation of powers issues and Congress's powers to mess with the courts. We'll see what happens when that case is argued in the fall, what the Supreme Court does with it. Bobby, also on Monday, the court finally docketed the long-pending cert petitions in Al-Balul and Nashiri, uh-huh. the two jurisdictional challenges to the Guantanamo military commissions. The government's responses to the cert petitions are now due on May 31st, although, Bobby, I would be shocked if they don't request an extension, which would push consideration off until the fall. Yep. But at least there's finally movement in the Supreme Court on these two major Guantanamo cases. And last but not least, Bobby, relevant to our 702 conversation, the Supreme Court on Monday took no action in a number of pending cases that all raised basically the same question, which is whether we ever have an expectation of privacy in what's called our cell site location information, um, right? So just to sort of put mm-hmm. the the non-technical spin on this, right? Um, Phone companies can place Bobby where you and I are at just about all times when our cell phones are on. Um, And certainly at all times when we're using our cell phones because for our cell phones to work, they have to ping a cell tower, right? Um, And the the phone company knows which tower it's pinging. Well, does this information fall within the third-party doctrine, that old chestnut where information we voluntarily share with third parties um, is not protected by the Fourth Amendment? Historically, the courts have said yes, but one of the interesting things, Bobby, about cell site location information is the government can track your movements over a fairly substantial period of time using CSLI, Bobby, including into your house. And in 2012, in the Jones GPS case, at least four justices suggested that this kind of pervasive tracking of your movements actually could implicate the Fourth Amendment. So it's a really interesting opportunity here for the court to revisit at least some aspects of the third-party doctrine in the context of location tracking. Absolutely. I think that one of the looming interesting issues of our times is that it's, I think it's a question of how and when, not if, third-party doctrine gets chipped away at in various ways involving highly scalable uh, electronic technologies. And what role will Justice Gorsuch play in this context, where Justice Scalia was traditionally, I think, a bit more libertarian on Fourth Amendment issues than folks might have expected? So, Bobby, lots of interesting developments in the Supreme Court. Obviously, there the, the, the bottom line is stay tuned. Indeed. All right. So, last but not least... Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer. I mean, I got to say, I, I'm hard-pressed to pick which of his many great 80s films stands out the most in my mind. Uh, <laughs> Real Genius is definitely a contender. Uh, it is uh, full of great Val Kilmer-isms, great lines. I, I think I spent uh, an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out how to make the quarters roll across my knuckles the way he could do that. But, but then again, you know, um, uh, Top Secret also pretty strong. And if you don't go in for the the comedy of Val Kilmer, how about the drama of Ooh. Doc Holliday and Tombstone? Drama. It, so so you're, you're going with the good movies. Yeah. You, are you going to go in a different kind of more willowy direction? I'm going to go in a slightly different direction, which is to say that, I mean, obviously, I, I think that the, the clubhouse leader has to be Top Gun. I mean, everything you're doing. Yeah, but yeah. I, I know, know it's the easy answer, yeah. but come on. I don't know. But there's no, his lines, he... Okay, I'll give you a little bit of Top Gun. He's the straight man. It's pretty good, but there's so many other great characters there. Whereas in, in some of these other movies, really, Val Kilmer's the whole show. All right, so but 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 I may never forgive him for Red Planet, right? I mean, so yeah. Red Planet, I, I call this the Armageddon problem, right? When Hollywood, for whatever reason, produces two movies yeah. at the yeah. exact same time about the exact same topic that basically knock each other out. Right, so there's Ar- Armageddon, and then what was the other asteroid? Deep Impact. Deep Impact, It wasn't yeah. an asteroid, it was a comet. That was totally different. <laughs> 
one was Ben Affleck. One was one was Ben Affleck. One was like Morgan uh, Morgan Freeman, Robert Duvall, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Trying to think who else was in? Yeah, they were um, awful. Uh, they would have been much Leone. better if they'd had Val Kilmer. Well, so, and then Red Planet, you had, right, the Val Kilmer version versus Mission to Mars, mm-hmm. right, the, yep. which was the, the, what, the Tim Robbins, Gary Sinise, Don Cheadle. All of these are pretty terrible compared to something like The Martian. Well, there is that. Yeah. Um, so, so, Val Kilmer, we hope you're on the mend. Um, we hope you're listening. We hope we know you're not listening. <laughs> um, I guess I already blew the Bobby. You can be my wingman anytime, but you know I'll be your Huckleberry. You'll be my Huckleberry. Well, I, I guess that's better than nothing. Um, anyway, listeners, you know hopefully everything's out okay out where you are. It's been an interesting week here in Austin. Um, I'm gonna go home and and I guess Bobby root for the Spurs to show up in game Thank two. Thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, you just said show up. That's all you wanted is a good game. <laughs> How about to win, Steve? Come on. <laughs> How can I needle you if the Spurs, you know, turn around and win four in a row? I'll be watching very closely tonight. Uh, well, we certainly know that I'm not going to be watching the Mets anytime soon. Oof, yeah, oh, too bad about Syndergaard. Uh, don't get me started about Syndergaard. <sighs> All right, well. On uh, that here, depressing, here, here's lat, lat-tearing note. <laughs> here's something Chris Paul ends up on the Spurs next year. Indeed. All right, everybody stay safe out there. We'll talk to you next week. Adios.